Welcome to episode 174, Innovative Approaches for Treating Fears and Phobias in Young Children, featuring Dr. Karen Levine. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth Irias, and today I am really actually excited and interested to be talking with Dr. Karen Levine. Uh, She is a psychologist in private practice, and she is also a part-time lecturer at the psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. And her specialization is working with young children around anxiety, uh, developmental challenges, and specifically working with phobias. Um, I think this topic is really interesting Um, for those of our listeners who don't know it. I have a child with special needs, and so this is something that I'm particularly interested in, not just to share the information, but to learn from myself. Um, So thank you so much for joining us again, Dr. Karen Levine. Karen, thank you so much. Um, Why don't you take a minute and tell our listeners a bit about yourself and how you came to have this specialization? Well, thanks for having me. Um, I kind of... uh... Well, be- before becoming a psychologist, I worked in a toddler daycare. I had two two-year-olds and three-year-olds, and and they all have a million fears and meltdowns. and And I used play and playfulness a lot to kind of play through their fears. Just I had hours on end with these kids, and and I liked to play, and and it, they just seemed to respond so well to it. I used a lot of humor, and and um, you know, one was afraid of giving up their bottle, or afraid of going outside, or coming inside, or getting wet, or whatever it was. So we did a lot of play around those kind of normative fear issues. And then I started working a lot as a psychologist, a lot with kids with autism and kids with Williams syndrome specifically. Um, And both of those groups as a whole have lots and lots of anxiety, fears, and phobias. And so I, I kept extending and developing the approach that I really had developed a lot when working in daycare. And I learned CBT and um, I integrated kind of a model of gradual exposure. I studied play therapy, so I integrated play therapy with gradual exposure more or less and, um, and found I was able to treat some of these issues in kids sometimes pretty quickly um, that sort of seemed intractable. They might have been going on a long time. The family might be working around, oh, we can't vacuum or put on the coffee maker or uh, when the kid is at home because there's, they'll, they'll flip out. And then, you know, that might have been going on for months or a year. And then sometimes just within a few sessions, you can really treat those. And kids have a lot of fun participating in that kind of treatment because it's all based on play and playfulness and interactive humor. I'm so excited to talk to you about this topic. And you already said it. I mean, for young children, fears are name of the game. I mean, I think we all had fears of a monster being under our beds or in our closets or whatever else. Um, Can you first, I guess, establish the framework of what are normative fears and when, in your mind, does it cross the line into being, quote unquote, to steal from DSM, you know, more pathological in the sense that it has more functional impairment? Where is that line for you clinically? I mean, it's really if if parents or school are finding they're having to do lots and lots of workarounds for the everyday fun activities that kids are doing or everyday everyday activities. If the kid can't go to a birthday party because they're too scared of the happy birthday song or too scared of the candles, or if it, I've had several kids scared of the happy birthday song, which you wouldn't think was a big deal, so you don't sing it, but it comes up all the time at school and parties and get-togethers and pretend play. Um, or uh, so it's really how much work around are they doing? If you know, I saw one family that they couldn't go into the store for several months a year because the child was terrified of masks, which you'd think, well, don't wear a mask, but but it comes up all over the place in public places and in the food store they have masked characters. And once you're scared of something, so many of us kids and adults, you become sort of hyper vigilant, almost looking for it and detecting it everywhere because what if I see it? Um, and and phobias spread too. So a child scared of thunderstorms to the point where where they won't go outside. Then I saw a child he wasn't going to go to camp because outside he, there was a lot of time outside. And what if there was a thunderstorm? So when it really spreads and becomes very dysfunctional, uh, very impacting, impactful in terms of the child not being able to do the things that that they would 
would have fun doing that you know really impact their quality of life. Or the child who won't go to school because they're scared there might be a fire drill and they're scared of the sound of the alarm. Some of these things are rational fears. Um, I hate to say it, but shooting drills. You know, there's a lot of talk in our society that we're putting kids in potentially traumatic situations just by running the drills at all. Because then it's like, hey, we need to be aware that someone with a gun could show up. <laughs> um, right, so, right. and that's, it's not irrational in our society to have that thought in the back of your mind. You know, adults, I'm sure many of us, I know I do, at public events, walk into a big store, anything else, I'm looking at where are the exits. You know, like, how mm -hmm. do you also decide when a fear is adaptive? And is it the same line of when it becomes maladaptive? My child is deathly afraid of needles. And my child has also had a ton of medical trauma. So it's like this element that's like, well, no kidding. I can't believe you on that one. It hurts. Right, right. I mean, I, that was that's true. Actually, a lot of the kids with Lamb syndrome have had heart surgeries. And, you know, so their natural anxiety and fears extend to their experiences, like, like for the kids who, who've heard about school shootings or hear about it with the drills. Although one of my patients decided it's in case bears came into the school, which was less scary. I think I him. like that. <laughs> yeah. But that could also be a realistic fear in certain <laughs> parts of the country and world. So there's that. That's true. No, I think a lot of this is just, I mean, in terms of how you respond, you really want to acknowledge the fear. The fear is real and nothing wrong with fear. You know, sort of that no bad feelings, you know, and that's a valid and a real fear. I think it's very helpful for kids to help them sort out what, what fears kind of are, are logical, good ones. But then it's like what you do about them. Like, okay, we're, we're scared about school shootings, but we go to school and we drop off our kids. And, and, and for some kids, you can begin to talk about probabilities, extremely unlikely. You know, even around COVID, I had some germ phobes get extremely scared, um, you know, to the point where they wouldn't go out of the house kind of thing. And we talked about odds and probabilities and what ifs and problem solving. So for those kind of things, for kids who have that kind of cognitive and language capacity, I think doing some psychoed around it, more a la CBT kind of talking and reasoning about it too. Um, and you don't want to, in this play, when you're helping detoxify the issue, you don't want to invalidate their fear. Even if it's an illogical fear, they're really terrified of the vacuum cleaner, even though that's not a particularly sensible fear. It's what they're feeling. So you want to validate that even as you detoxify their experience. You use very specific language that I'm already really picking up on in this idea of detoxifying. Can you speak a little bit to that language that you're using? Is that coming from a fear and phobia treatment world? Or is that coming from your experience and how you're conceptualizing these things and then psychoeducating families about it as well? I think that's really just how I conceptualize it, that for a, for a child terrified of hand dryers, let's say, then you know going in the public bathroom is terrifying. Um, being at a place that might have a public bathroom is terrifying. Um, and so it becomes for that child a much more significant, dangerous sort of fireball lurking out there. So I feel I, I'm using detoxify to be you take away the fireball components of it. And then it's, oh, it's just a hand dryer. Sometimes you even see kids giving the thing a look. Once they're not afraid of it, they kind of look at it like, oh, that's all it was. You know, it's just that. It doesn't have all the red fire coming out of it that it feels like it does to me. Um, so that's what I mean, detoxify. From a diagnostic perspective, I'm imagining in your practice with this specialization, and you've already touched on a bit, your clientele kind of runs the gamut from being a child who is um, neurodivergent, has other disabilities or needs and um, adaptations versus a child who is neurotypical that has this kind of isolated fear diagnostically, do you separate that? Like when you're when in your mind, when you're conceptualizing the care of a child who has this isolated fear of the birthday song, let's say, versus a child who has a medical condition or neurodivergence that may be contributing to this fear and all of the, as you said before, we started recording all the fluff around it. Um, how do you separate that? And like diagnostically, what what are you diagnosing when you have like this isolated fear over here versus this more kind of complex presentation? Well, 
in terms of how I work with the child, I don't I don't really make a distinction if I think it might be from, you know, from a real event or from from their circumstance or from some biological causes that, you know, a genetic like Williams syndrome, they're going to be a higher anxiety level. I don't make a distinction in terms of how I actually work with the child. I mean, I do make a distinction in terms of much more in terms of the child's developmental capacity. You know, before I meet with a child, I find out, you know, from the parents what they like to play with, what they think is funny, how their fears, fear or fears seem to evolve, how they respond. So I so I have in my mind some ways I'm going to approach them. But it's very um, maybe I'm just a very concrete person. It's kind of like what works, what what excites this child, gets them engaged and then what seems to touch on their issues. So what. So even, and I don't ever know how far I'll get. Is this issue going to vanish and be a thing of the past? Um, or is it going to still be there at some level? Maybe the biological cause is making it still be there at some level or keep latching on to some new thing. But I might be able to make a pretty big dent in it. So I would, but I would approach it the same way. Um, thank you. It sounds like, so for you, it's less about diagnosis and more about symptom management and kind of the the context around that phobia and how it is for that child and kind of what the offset is and what you're doing in play therapy. Right, right. It's so interesting, too, because very often kids really can make a full recovery, in a sense, from their phobia, that they're not afraid of the thing anymore. I remember I was working with a child who developed a phobia around eggs. She was really, really sensitive to smell. And a lot of people sensitive to smell don't like the smell of eggs. But to her, it was so extreme. She wouldn't go in a restaurant if, if she because there might be someone eating eggs there. You know, at the house, nobody could eat eggs. It was pretty widespread. And we, we treated that and treated that, and, and it was gone. And I kept seeing her because she had other ones that evolved. And there were some other issues I was seeing her for as well. And then... I was talking to her one day. I said, remember you used to be scared of eggs? And she was like, scared of eggs? Who would be scared of eggs? Like it was so gone for her that she couldn't even imagine that she had had that fear not that long before because it didn't have any of that. It, it didn't evoke. I mean, often kids do remember, but, but often they even have trouble remembering quite what it was that scared them so much. You already touched upon it, and I'm sure it's going to be a recurring theme in our conversation today, but um, talking to parents and families, I imagine you're doing a lot of psychoeducation. It also sounds like inoculating with expectations about like, we're going to do our best. <laughs> like, I don't know if I can take this. Right. Is Before we dive in more to this topic, is there more that you want to build out there in just the conversation of how you're working with parents? It sounds like you're talking to parents first before you see the child. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that, about like your kind of assessment process, and then we'll dive into the treatment part? Right. I mean, what I really, what I want to know from parents is, um, right, like, what do they like to play with, um, just so I know some ways to begin to play with them and build a relationship and engage them. And I really want to know what their child finds is funny, what more about their sense of humor, because I want to use humor a lot to, to make the the anxiety as li- as low as possible when I'm when I'm playing with them, and then um, from that I can also get somewhat at their developmental level, so I can target it all within their general range. And then what I tell them is I tell them about this process, which is somewhat counterintuitive. So it can take a while. Even gradual exposure can be a little bit counterintuitive uh, to if parents haven't heard of that concept. And then I'll and but then I'll explain the humor and the playfulness um, because sometimes with this kind of humor that I use, kids can get a little dysregulated if you're doing gradual exposure, getting them really whoop-de-doo, silly play with the vacuum cleaner, sucking up the bubbles, and everything gets wild and messy. So you, they, you might see some. Uh, a pot, potty words might come out or whatever. So you might see some over-the-top behavior if you get the kid really dysregulated. So I say, let me know if there's anything you're uncomfortable with. And, I, and also, sometimes I can't read the child's cues at, at first. So I say, let me know if you think so-and-so, so-and-so, your child is uncomfortable as we play, as we do the gradual exposure. Because I try to modify what I'm doing based on the child's affect. If they start to look scared, I'll back down the, the fear ladder and I'll amp up the playful ladder. If, if they're really good, I'll keep going um, up the fear ladder. But I, I could misread the child. I, I don't know the kids as well as the parents do. So I always do it together with the parents. And I say, if you feel they're not comfortable or if you're not comfortable, just let me know. Just give me a signal. We can keep changing it up. That's really helpful framing. For 
children, do you tend to work with a, with a caregiver or parent in the room when doing these interventions? Or do you prefer to have it just be like one-on-one? I usually prefer to work with the parents because if they can continue doing it, so much the better if they can keep working on it. Or even I say, even if you do play just exactly like we did, and the more times you do it, the more exposure the child gets. Um, some parents can take it and run with it. For some parents, it just feels so unnatural or not how they usually play with their child that they wait and come back and do it with me. But I, I prefer to do it with them for the parents' sake, so they kind of really know what we're doing. And also um, for the child, so they're totally comfortable and, and relaxed. Um, and it's been interesting because, you know, when we all went over to Zoom with the pandemic, I thought, how is this going to work? Because I was usually manning everything or running everything and the parent would be my assistant. And now it's almost the other way around. But in many ways, I find it better because the parent really has to do the gradual exposure. I mean, I keep the playfulness going and I do some of it on Zoom. We can get into that. I mean, on YouTube, using YouTube and using props, which I can show you. We can get into that. But um, the parents have to take a much more active role. And I feel like more of the parents are getting the idea and can carry it over more easily because they're doing it more in the session. I can't totally take over as, as I might end up doing in person. Got it. That, that's really helpful. And speaking as someone, I do, I do not have that much experience working with young children. And it is its own language and an important niche to develop and focus on. And as someone who's worked quite a bit with adolescents, certainly I, I too prefer to work a lot with the parents to kind of work on the system and the support that's going on outside of the therapy session to maintain that. So thank you for clarifying that um, with, with this particular population. Um, gosh, there's so many points that I want to cover here. Um, where would you like to go next? Well, let me just add one little caveat to that in terms of parents. Sometimes there's something that the child and parent have so developed as a as a response pattern together that I might first try to work them away from what give the child some experience coping with the the issue without the parent there and then bring the parent in. Um, only if I get stuck working with them both together though. Usually I can I can do that even though of course a fear the parent and child have experienced the fear together over and over and over again. Um, So they're both kind of learning new responses at the same time. Do you feel like there is a bumper on where this doesn't work with any kind of fear or phobia? So if we're looking at, for example, encopresis, which can develop for any number of reasons, do you feel like, oh, I don't do that much over here and I prefer to do this kind of work or start with medical? Like, how, how do you approach, again, the stuff that's a little bit more complex that may not be as cut and dry as a fear of happy birthday? If I'm doing something that involves bodily functions, I'll always make sure they do a medical rule out. Or some kids are treated feeding issues I do a lot with, and I always make sure they they you know, make sure that they can eat and swallow and chew and, you know, or whatever the medical issue is that that's being treated. It might be at the same time. Um, Feeding issues, uh, toilet, toilet related issues, you know, all of those, I do medical rule out first. Um, Or vomiting and fear of vomiting, that, that kind of stuff. Anything that might have some medical causes and could be medically treatable, of course. That's always wonderful in terms of, oh, solved. We don't need you. <laughs> That's great. So no, I always do that. Thank you for for specifying that. I have somebody in my life whose child has a illness that causes any number of of concerns around bodily functions that's developed and caprices. And I was fascinated by some of the interventions that not a therapist had recommended, but uh, um, a, a specialist in those bodily functions um, that it was like, okay, we're going to do this and blow bubbles at the same time in order to get certain muscles to work mm-hmm. a certain way. And all of these things that I've just not at all skilled and, and trained in that are just out there. Um, so I, I can hear what you're saying of making sure that you have these other folks involved that are outside of just the psychotherapeutic world to address those physiological and medical issues. Right. And and some of them I've learned by collaborating with, like I, I hadn't done little kids fear of throwing up, you know, emetophobia. Um, and there aren't very many people who do that. So I was like, well, maybe I should develop that. So I, I collaborated a bit and learned a bit from people who work with older kids and adults. And then I took from what I 
learned from that and integrated it into this play-based model. And I have my three levels of realistic vomit here. And <laughs> it actually lends itself to this whole approach very uh, nicely for little kids afraid of And sometimes, maybe, maybe people aren't aware that little kids develop this, uh, you know, and sometimes it comes from, you know, I saw one child who breathed in a Cheerio and threw up, and she had no idea that whole thing could happen, you know, and she was about four or five, I guess, and then she wouldn't eat because what if she threw up, and, you know, and so it went, just not so different from older kids with that issue. Got it. Um, you have a whole bag of tricks. <laughs> <laughs> I do. <laughs> okay. So, so let's go back to the assessment process. Your brand is humor and assessing a child's not only their fear or phobia but also their skills their aptitudes what they think is funny what they think is silly again very different than what i'm used to in the work that i do um for those of our listeners who are not as familiar with this process can you kind of walk through like how do you talk to children about that how do you um cater toward the child's developmental level and abilities? Like, how does that work for you? Well, with most kids I work with, I don't do a lot of psychoeducation. I don't do a lot of talking about what I'm doing. I kind of hit the ground running. And kids are, for the most part, very happy to do that. You know, they don't, most kids aren't that interested in a big explanation beforehand. It's kind of like, you know, with YouTube, when you watch the videos and there's like a five-minute introduction, you're like, let me fast forward through that and let's get to the meat of it. Kids are more like that. So mostly, I mean, if someone is old enough to say, you know, you're not going to give me a shot, are you? Or whatever, you know, you're not going to make me listen to something or other. I say, no, 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 we aren't going to do anything that you're uncomfortable with. And then, then, I, then I hit the ground running. We're just going to go really slow and make it really fun and, you know, try it and see and then let me know in half an hour or whatever. And I start off so fun. And so, you know, some kids, you can't do the big whoop-de-doo laughing. They're more low-key kids, but you still go with with their version of fun to start off with. Um, and, and so I don't really do much psychoeducation with these, you know, with the young kids, but I kind of just start in. And then at, at, the other thing is most kids are quite interested in the thing they're scared of once you can take a little bit of the fear away. So when you can do this play around it, it's very compelling for a lot of kids. Um, even something like, um, I have, I have this on video, so I've seen it several times. Every time it strikes me, it was a kid, kid with Williamson, syndrome terrified of hand dryers. I ended up buying a hand dryer because I saw so many kids afraid of hand dryers. So I have one. That, so I have one and I showed him, look, it's not plugged in. He was like, oh, and I showed him, look, here's the plug. It's not plugged in. And he didn't, he didn't quite believe me. So I, you know, tapped it around and held it up and see, it's not plugged in. And then he really wanted to look at it and how does it work and where's the motor and where does the sound come from? He's really, really interested in it. So I often see that, that it's very compelling. And then we can start our play with it and do all kinds of things with it. So going to your approach of play therapy and then gradual exposure, can we use that case example of the hand dryer? So what does that look like? So you started with, here it is, here's this literal device, it's not going to make any noise right now. So kind of letting them know the scary thing isn't going to happen. Then what? Like, how are you doing that? And I'm, I'm curious. So it's like, let's pretend that that child is so afraid of that thing, that maybe you can't even use those words. Like, where do you start and kind of this gradual exposure? Because I can imagine like, okay, we're going to put it over in the corner of the room. Like, how do you do that? Right. No, that's an, that's a really good question. And I wanted to make sure to get to that because you have to, you have to figure out where to start. That's one thing I try to get from the parents. Would they be afraid? Do you think if I do this, if I do that? So sometimes, sometimes I was, I was seeing one little boy was terrified of TVs because he'd seen something scary on a TV. So he was afraid he might see a TV, which really, again, every store has a TV screen or something like that in it. This was a while ago before everything was computer too. So, so it really was limiting for him. So I set up a little dog and a little block. I said, oh, this boy's watching TV and he's afraid. The boy was out of the room. He's like, I got to go. He was very polite. I got to go. I'll be back. <laughs> and then, uh, 
And so I thought, oh, even just a pretend, using a block as a pretend TV was too much for him. So I went back some more steps. So we did a little drawing. I, I made a little dot. I said, oh, let's pretend that's the TV. Because it was the concept of it in his mind. Clearly, when I said TV, watching TV, that brought up an image that, af that made him afraid. So I had to go much slower and say, oh, let's, should we use a dot for a TV? Let's make a little dot on a piece of paper and just drawing. Um, and so we started back there and worked our way up a little bit and worked our way up. So, you, so my rule of thumb is to add more playfulness and subtract more reality, you know, move further steps from, from reality when you're, when you're, when you've, when you've gone too fast or when you, you know, where you figure out where the starting point is, um, so the child with the hand dryer, once he realized it wasn't on, he was fine with that, but he wouldn't let me plug it in. So it's like, how can it be in between on and off? What do you do then? So what I did was, because um, I've done this a lot with hand dryers, I had him um, leave the, you know, I said, why don't you and your mom uh, go on a walk? And, and he left some of his toys. So I put his teddy bear in the in a in one of the toy school bus and I put the hand dryer on and had it zoom the teddy bear across the room and I made a video of it with my phone. So he came back and, and I said, oh, I made a video you want to see and I turned the volume all the way off and he was fascinated with that. He was so interested in it. And he want, and then pretty soon after, I think I did one more and then he wanted to do it. He's, he's like, can I do it? He wanted to make a video with me with that. And it was such a new, different use of the hand dryer. Um, that I think that really kept his anxiety down. It was so playful, and it was using his own toy, and he thought it was really fun. And then after we did that, we did we did these like scarves in the in the hand dryer, so they blew across the room, and tissues flying around, and he had a blast with it. And then we went. He he was one of these kids we could treat within a couple of sessions. We went in. There was a real hand dryer down the hall, so we went in, and he we brought the scarves, and he flew them in that hand, you know, and then he was okay with it pretty soon after. He was like, I did it. He, he was kind of blown away. <laughs> the creativity that you <laughs> use is just awesome to me. You also rely heavily on humor. Looking at that, I'm guessing from a neurobiological level, if you will, by introducing humor and silliness, you're kind of pulling away some of the activation in the nervous system in order to kind of get underneath that you're nodding can you speak to that for the folks like me who are not as well versed and i want to ask you to do like the gradual exposure 101 for those of us that are not as familiar with it well you know i wish i knew the brain better but i can just i can explain it conceptually i mean when you're when you're in a relaxed laughing engaged state it's not just humor watching a funny movie i think it's engaged socially engaged humor so the other person can be your anchoring point too i think so it's you know what we call co-regulating sometimes in play therapy so when and so when the child is in that relaxed engaged playful state that's a far far away state from the vigilant anxious uh, fight, flight, <laughs> or flee state. Um, so that's how I conceptualize it, that it's sort of the opposite end of the spectrum. And then you're pairing, for Gradual Exposure 101, you're pairing that emotional state with a little bit of experiencing the thing. So the child's in a really relaxed state and they're experiencing their scared thing. So when he looked at that video with the sound off of a funny video of his bear going across the room in, in the school bus, his, he was like laughing, like, ooh, that thing, even including the hand dryer, made me laugh. So it's building a whole new um, emotional association for him. So give me that gradual exposure 101. So you mentioned like, some children you've worked with at just a few sessions before we started recording. You said some kids, you don't necessarily know how far you're going to be able to take it, how much stuff there is around it. If it is one of those things that's tied to like needles that, especially if a kid has medical needs, are going to be a lot of needles. Like, how do you reduce that? But g give me the 101. I'm all ears. <laughs> well, so, so I, 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 I think I invented this this phrase unbundle. I liked the concept of unbundling a phobia, um, and then doing gradual exposure with the with the strand. So if you take something like like shots, there might be different components of it that are scary for the child. One is the whole business, being there at the doctor's, um, having someone else hold their arm. Um, 
and then the the syringe and then fear about the pain and then the smell of the alcohol it might have become this big blob of fearful stuff so i like to unbundle it you know so sometimes for some kids i'll just you know first do play just with a toy syringe and a and if that's too scary then then i might start with a drawing um so I figure out where to start, and then I do just little bits of sometimes just one of the bundles. So for, for one child, we did all kinds of pretend play, and we thought maybe she was ready, and she had this shot scheduled, and she wasn't ready at all. She couldn't handle it at all, so we went. So I realized, oh, I missed some places in the, in the unbundling. We'd done pretend play. We'd done talking about it. We looked at videos of it. We didn't give her any gradual exposure with the actual syringes, and, and it seemed like that was maybe something she was really scared of. So her dad ordered some syringes online. You can get them on uh, on Amazon, and took out the needles of them so she could they could just play with these. And they played all kinds of creative ways. Put them in in like sugar water and squirted them in each other's mouths because they're basically straws. Um, and then then he put the needle in. She was a pretty careful kid, so so he had some with needles, and they squirt you know gave shots to oranges. Um, um, so we had to. So in thinking of unbundling, I'd, I'd unbundled a bit the whole experience, but I'd missed the piece that with the actual syringe. For some things, it's the sound of things, and the it's both the sound, like for thunderstorms, I think it's both the actual sound of thunder, which is deep, you know, which evokes scary feelings in us, like a scary movie, and then also the sudden startle of it. So I usually separate those out in unbundling and work with just the sound. So I, we look at a video, and I say, okay, three, two, one, when it gets to that point in the video that's when we're going to hear it and we do it very softly and so we can get used to the actual sound with no surprise element then then louder and louder and then we tend to surprise each other but put it very quiet again so we're unbundling the sound of it from the startle of, of the sound of the onset of the sound got it so so it's like peeling back all the different layers and, and looking at your uh, needle example i've known children and adults that um, with fear around needles, that it's not actually necessarily the needle, that sometimes it's the smell of the alcohol and the alcohol that they rub with. So for you, it's identifying basically very slowly every little aspect. And it sounds like awareness that you might miss something and need to go back and catch those other aspects that you thought, okay, I think we're there. And then go, wait, no, just, just kidding. There's something here we need to go back to. Exactly. I was doing it with a boy with blood pressure cuff, and we started off all pretend. He could do that. We did the pretend one. And then he got interested in squeezing the bulb, and he loved doing that. So we snuck out a real one that he because he was interested in the bulb. So he got interested in the bulb on that one. So I thought he was all ready. He was holding it, doing it. So I started to put it on his arm, and he's like, no. So I thought, whoops, what did I forget? And then I realized, then I went back and put it on his shoe. I, I forgot to do the whole sensory aspect of it sort of on his skin. So we started off with putting it on his shoes and then pulled up his pant leg and put it on his leg so he could get the feeling of it. And each time he would pretend to throw it away and say, no, no, no. And then he kind of laugh and then we put it up higher. No, no, no. And then after a while, he was kind of like done with that and went back to the bulb when, when we put it on his arm. So I had forgotten the, the sensory piece to do or I had, hadn't realized that that was a component for him. As you're talking about this, the word that keeps playing in my mind is patience. Right. I, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because what often happens is either the parent or I will go too quickly. There's the urge to, oh, we're there. Let's just turn it on. Oh, you can do it now. Let's just do it. And then you can, you have to really backslide or backpedal and, and retrieve, you know. It's not the end of the world and it's going to happen. But yeah, once the child's able to tolerate the thing, the noise of the vacuum cleaner or whatever it is, you think they're there. Um, it's like, well, they're okay with the sound, but that doesn't mean they're there sort of in context in real life yet. So you, so you still want to go slowly. And it's very easy for adults to, to feel like we're done, we're ready. And it's exciting too. It's like, wow, I didn't think they could do this. So let's just try it, you know? And it's like, you do have to have patience. If that happens where everybody involved, every adult goes, oh, I think we've got the thing. We're good. Like check the box. And then the child's walking through the grocery store and there's a spill and they pull out some big machine to clean it. It sounds like the vacuum cleaner. And the next thing you know, and I'm curious, do you use language like triggered or what language do you use to describe that, you know, the, the big response to whatever that stimulation is? Right. 
I flipped out or, you know, got really scared or whatever. Yeah, lost it, whatever. Right. I know it's gonna when be that typical. happens from a gradual exposure standpoint, is there risk of a real regression? Like, how do you approach that? So a parent calls and says, oh, my gosh, we were at the grocery store and this thing happened. And the next thing I know, there are tears everywhere and there are some things that have been thrown. What do we do? I try to remember to tell them in advance that it's not just a linear process. There's ups and downs. You can feel like you made it. Because also sometimes just if the child's stressed from some other source, maybe they didn't sleep well or they're sick or they were scared of other things that morning, they're going to be more vulnerable to something. So I said, you may see some ups and downs even when you've made it. And I and I always say, you you know, we, we got them here once, we can get them here again. And often the next time it's much quicker. And sometimes even when they've recovered from that event, they're not afraid in general. Sometimes there can be sort of an outlier event in the midst of it all. You have mentioned already using humor. Before you and I started recording, we were talking about dispositional differences between children. Of Some kids are highly expressive, really big feelers, big expressors, sensory seekers. Then you have the other side of that coin, uh, the other end of the spectrum, where kids may not show their cards. They keep their cards close to their chest. They don't express a lot. How do you work with children when you have a hard time reading whether they think what you're doing is funny or if they're scared? Like, how do you recalibrate? Right. It's it's harder because I really base all this on their cues. They're interested or they're bored. They're scared or they're not scared. They they think it's funny and laughing, or they're not. So it's it's much harder to do when you can't read the cues as well. I try to do more play with someone I can't read as well. I try to do more play with them first to kind of get to know their little tells. You know, the more I can, like oh, I see when she kind of closes her eyes a little bit. That's when she's really getting scared. And obviously, I ask the parents, and I'm even more. Um, careful to work with the parents and remind them, remind me, you know, how's she doing? I'll check in with the parents. Do you think she's okay? Do you think, do you think this is too much? Should we back it up a little? Um, and, and some kids also don't even express the, their enjoyment humor as, as, a, as fully, or may not have that, may not find humor to be as fun as most kids do. And so then there might be other ways of making it fun. For some kids, I've used music, like found their favorite songs and put them on, you know, and they can control what songs and they're into that. That's something that I can use on YouTube pretty easily too. So for some kids, as we're doing fire alarm stuff, they want to pick what song is playing at the same time or whatever, um, which which isn't sort of funny the way it, for another kid that might not bring their anxiety down, but for some for another kid that might. So you really want to individualize even the the thing that brings anxiety down. I find humor so effective and a, a, it makes the activity so appealing for parents and kids, but it's not for every kid or every parent. So you really want to individualize. When creating a treatment plan, as you said, for a condition or conditions that tend not to be linear, what's the damage that can be done by going too fast? And as I say that, I'm putting this asterisk next to it because we live in a world where we get a basic education, a little bit about a lot of things in our you know, master's or doctoral degrees before we go out and do the work we're doing. And there are some things where it's like, okay, like we can work with that. And like, we should have, you know, a little bit of specialized training. Um, and then there are some things where it's like, you really need to know what you're doing. I'm guessing this goes solidly into that second category. <laughs> um, what's at risk when we... I correct me if if you disagree with this word, but when we go too fast and we traumatize a child, right? I mean, I always tell parents we can always back up. We can always back up and work our way up again. You know, it's not a crisis. You don't want parents or therapists to to be too anxious about it. And you really use the child's cues as as your guide, so you're not going to mess up a lot. You know, if they're if they're too afraid you're going to know it. They're not going to participate or they're going to, you know, it's going to be pretty clear. So, um, I, I, I thought when I wrote our first book on this, I thought, oh, I can write about how to do it and parents can take it home and do it. But it is a little trickier. I realized, I think it's harder for parents to do if they have the history with the child around the phobia, which for most young kid issues they would. And it's also a little harder for parents to 
kind of tinker with the ideas of, okay, how do we move up just a baby step in gradual exposure without meaning, okay, now we go into the fire alarm and listen to it or whatever, you know, what are the, all the in-between steps? It is harder than I realized. Um, but if you go too fast, you won't hurt the child. It just won't work, you know, like, oh, they're still scared of whatever, that's, which is where we started. So that's when you probably want, you know, some more help. Sometimes I suggest to find, you know, if someone can't find a therapist, this is before I did remote, but if someone can't find a therapist and they're emailing me for a consult or whatever, I'll suggest find the person who most gets the child to laugh. It might be, you know, stereotype, but the uncle or something or a grandfather or a grandmother, you know, someone else who's who's not quite as in the tight family unit sometimes or a babysitter and, and have them do some of this um, because sometimes that lowers the anxiety too. That's exactly actually what I was going to ask you about speaking as not only a therapist, but as a parent of a child who has phobias. Yes, I have sought help from experts on this going, what do we do? Like, do we quote unquote, give into it? Like, you know, what do we do around this particular behavior? And feeling lost, also feeling worried that can easily turn into anxiety. And also speaking for myself as a parent, I am not great with patients. And I I mean, all parents have been through the ringer in the last few years with the pandemic. So there's that. But in the sense that I think no parent wants to watch their kid hurt. And so we want something fixed, air quotes, um, when you can't see me, fixed uh, yesterday. Um, because it's hard on the child, it's hard on the parent. And so I imagine for you as a clinician, there's a whole lot of pressure that might come in to like, well, we need to fix this now. And like, what do you mean that you guys just spent time with a hairdryer and Kleenex blowing up in the air? Like, how is that therapeutic? And how did I just pay X number of dollars and take time off work in order to do that? How do you kind of explain that to parents? How do you help them self-regulate? Because when phobias are really severe, the whole family is going through it. It's not just the child. It's true. It's true. I mean, we. I try to see, I try to make, obviously, I try to go as fast as the child can tolerate. And also just to make reasonable expectations, you know, even ahead of time, like, oh, the first session, my goal is for them to really have fun. And we'll do the very first steps of gradual exposure. And, and for me to get to know how to get them to laugh, how to engage them, and how we can really have fun together. And then very often in the first session, I get much further than that. Because as I say, kids are so interested in their fears that it often ends up being quite compelling. Um, but not always. And I, and I want to make sure it doesn't feel you know, too discouraging for parents, too. But often, often once you're making headway, even if it's within the session... Um, and if it's something that comes at, like I was working with a child with, um, fire alarm phobias that really impacted her participation at school. She just couldn't focus because what if there's a fire alarm? She didn't want to go to school. So we got pretty far. The first couple sessions in the office, you know, I used a little remote speaker and we played hide and seek with it. And I would put the fire alarm very quietly on it and hide it somewhere and see if she could hear it and find it. And we, we did a lot of play like that. And she was really into it and, and got so she really kind of was fine with the sound of it. And then her mother and I thought, again, thought she was almost there. And she still went back that week and there was a fire drill and was terrified. The whole same set of reactions. Yeah. So, um, but you know, I really try to form an alliance with parents when I can. And, and her mother and I really had formed an alliance and we were both like, Oh, I'm so disappointed. Oh, we thought she was there. You know, like we messed up or we thought she was there together and we're disappointed. I mean, obviously it doesn't, affect me day to day the way it does her, but, but it was very uh, collaborative, our shared excitement and our shared disappointment. So then I, um, then I ended up collaborating with the psychologist at school and had her do these same games. I videoed them at home and had the school psychologist do the same activities with her at school that ended up really helping her. She sort of needed it in context, in vivo, because once she was in, in my office or at home with her mother, she was fine with it all. But I think at school, her baseline was up a little anyway. So many kids have a lot of these fears, as you said, that are contextual around school. Do you find yourself trying to collaborate regularly with those helping professionals, with teachers, things like that, to try to create that kind of wraparound environment? 
I really do. I mean, often kids with autism have behavior behaviorists and behavior specialists, and some of them get the playful aspect and some of them don't. It really depends. Um, because sometimes a behavioral plan will just have, you know, they'll tolerate something X number of minutes or, you know, when they can't tolerate it at all until you unbundle it and, and, and change their state to more playful. But some beha- some behaviors have been able to co- collaborate really well, and, and school psychologists generally c- can get the idea of it pretty well. Yes, yeah, so that's so helpful. If it's not something at home or, or out in the community, if it's something at school only, it's so useful to mm-hmm. collaborate. Um. This is just because I'm curious. And if you don't have any research base for this, for our listeners, this is just Beth being curious. (laughs) You took these two models where you have play therapy, the use of silliness, humor, play to connect and understand and reflect, and then gradual exposure and married them. And we're talking specifically about the application of this to children. How do you feel about the application of this for adults? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I don't know, except among my friends, because I don't treat adults. But I think there's an awful lot to it. Um, My husband will always use it on me. Like, I was nervous about doing this podcast. And he's like, oh, I'll just tell a few jokes, get you laughing. (laughs) He knows too much now. But I think there's an awful lot to it. And I think people who do a lot of work around phobias with adults often are sort of playful people or naturally incorporate a lot. I was watching a video of a guy online who does um, adults who have fears of flying and he has a whole program and and he uses so much humor as he goes with it. Um, I don't, I'm sure everybody doesn't, but I, th- I think people maybe naturally do it. I, there's very little research about it. I did see one study about spiders, uh, people, adults afraid of spiders and the they did just gradual exposure and they did gradual exposure with someone being a silly voice of the spider saying, I'm afraid of you or something like some silly spider jokes and the, the humor group did better. But there's very little about That's it. That's really interesting. Thank you. Thank you for entertaining that question. Um, you work both with children who are um, neurodivergent and with de- developmental disabilities or developmental challenges and children that do not have those considerations when you're using your methods and application to the first group, to the folks who have whatever language you feel most appropriate using for that child and what they, what the family uses themselves, whether it's special needs, developmental disabilities, whatever that language is, um, how does that differ when you're working with that population? Well, if they have less, I mean, if they have less language and less kind of metalinguistic capacity, I'll, I'll again, more hit the ground running, do more, start with play. Um, if they don't have pretend play, I'll start with some kind of miniature representation or some kind of representation of the thing. Um, so otherwise, I pretty much use the same approach. I mean, there's one thing also a lot of kids with uh, developmental disabilities, autism, they might have more trouble regulating in general. So I might not zoom up the hilarious ladder as quickly um, till I see how I can I, I would work to get them laughing and having just as much fun and funny, but I might be a little more careful till I see how to bring them down once I've brought them up, because just staying in a regulated state might be a little harder. That was actually a really good point that you just made. So for you, it's really gauging, especially with the children who have more neurodivergence, developmental considerations to be really mindful of their affect and their level of stimulation and if you're kicking them too high where is too high for you like how do you read that 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 i can't bring them back (laughs) right if i can't bring them back down to stay you know to can't bring them back down to to stay engaged for the next things you know if they're just or if they get so high that they they go into sort of negative behaviors or whatever you know throwing things all over instead of kind of staying organized enough to play but i'll go pretty high i mean they where they can they can be laughing hysterically on the floor practically peeing in their pants you know that's okay as long as they can sort of stay engaged and say do it again you know (laughs) and i'll you know send the balloon off with the hand dryer again or whatever that's okay because that's so the opposite of anxiety and and if they can yeah sometimes i'll just slow down sometimes you can do and have them involved oh well you come do it for me. You come help me. You know, that kind of thing. Get them a little more organized. Keep them a little more, all the tricks to keep them a little more regulated. You just made such a good point um, about the opposite of anxiety 
that I know is going to stay with me, that quote of like, what is the opposite of anxiety? And the idea, I think for those of us that aren't as familiar with it, that seeing it as the counter, if you will, to what is this state that's occurring? And then what is the natural kind of opposite? And how do we bring that up to down regulate over here? Um, behind you, before we started recording, you have some, you have some toys. Um, you have this laundry list of things that you do and the way that you do it. Can you just talk about some of those for our listeners? Because I think you're, we could spend, I think, just hours of you saying, well, and then with this, I do this. And I came up with this idea and I use this. And this one time we, we bought some donuts, you know, like, I feel like there's so much here. Can you just share some of those ideas, I think, to help us get our minds to unlock to what's possible when we're engaging this way? So some examples of, yes, of, of things I use, you mean? Yeah. Okay. Well, let's say there's um, often as kids are beginning to write, they don't like to make mistakes or even like first grade, second grade, that when they're writing, they get can get sort of perfectionist, almost like a little OCD-ish issue. And I've had a couple of kids who refuse to write anymore because it's not perfect. And that's obviously becomes a school problem. Um, so then I'll often do... And this is a great thing to do on, on uh, Zoom, too, because you can use the whiteboard and I'll do silly writing. So I'll do, oh, I'm going to make a perfect circle. Achoo! Oh, my goodness, it got all messed up. Or I'll, so I'll do a sneeze one, especially if they don't expect it. Most kids will giggle a little bit or I'll do a burp one, you know, depending on, again, what the child finds funny. Um, and we'll do silly letters and mess up and make mistakes on purpose. Um, you know, not totally different from what you do with, a, with an older kid around that mistakes on purpose kind of thing. Um, so that's one, one line. Another, one thing I've found so helpful is YouTube videos because they're videos of absolutely everything. So I have kids afraid of car horns and, and key fob, bloop, bloop, you know, those sounds, um, which come up all the time. And then on YouTube, there are videos of, um, car horn, um, concerts where people have gotten different tones and, and, you know, had whole, knew this, you know. <laughs> If it exists, you do have it. So if you Google car horn concerts, I think is where you'll see it. And and so I was working with a child with Williamson who loved music because most kids of Williamson do and was terrified of car horns. And we found these car horn concerts and she just loved them. Um, and then, you know, and then so that was just a place to start with her. Um, and YouTube also is very useful because you can adjust the speed and the volume. So for so for her, we watched that really quiet and then turned it up and turned it up. And you can also do other sounds at the same time. So we did key fob with her music playing and used it as an instrument, like the cymbals kind of when we used it as a, uh, a sound that was on purpose that we wanted to have happen in the music. Um, so again, pairing it and sort of giving her a new association with it, a new memory with it. Um, let's see. Oh, the the fire drill with the the sounds in general with the separate little mini kind of Bose type speaker is a wonderful way, way to play around with that and on Zoom I'll have the, the parents do that. Um, I'll usually play the YouTube first and then parents can hook it up between their phone and a little separate speaker um, because you can hide it, you can make it loud and soft but just hiding it and finding it is a really good uh, fun game and the child can find it, hide it for the parent to find, because when you're looking for it, you're listening closely to it. And that's really good exposure to all the sort of nuances of the sound as you're doing that, you know, when it's really quiet. Um, let's see, what are some other ones that I use? Well, for singing and for the happy birthday song, I do a lot of silly words, you know, like happy cracker day to you, you know, depending on what the child finds is funny. Happy birthday, depending, some kids think that's a riot. Um, some kids are, are just don't like any adults singing around them, period. And so then I'll like start to sing like A, B, C, D, and I'll cover my face like, oh no, I sang, oh, I didn't mean to. Oh, here it comes again, A, B, C, D. You know, that kind of, as long as the child's laughing and thinks it's funny. Or I'll put in the wrong letters like A, B, C, D, E, F, W, and they'll think, oh no, 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 that's not right. You know, do it again, that kind of thing. Are these useful? Uh, very. Um, thank you. Um, <laughs> use of dolls. So before we recorded, I pointed out the wonderful little dolls over your shoulder. Um, how do you, 
walk the line between using humor and embracing the silliness around a concept without having it feel like somebody's being made fun of or they're mocked? How do you do that? And how do you, how have you learned to recognize like this, this is okay. Basically I can, I can integrate this kind of absurdity and point it out without it being like, Oh, that was really mean. Right. Right. I mean, uh, what I am going for in my mind is empathy, that when I have a character pretend to be afraid or I pretend to be afraid, I'm being empathic. And often kids will say, that's like me or me too, or something like that. And that's when I know I've hit the empathy just right. Sometimes for some kids, particularly as they get sort of at the upper end range of where this, where I wouldn't necessarily use just this approach, um, they'll, they could, they might feel teased. I don't, I can't remember a kid that I really had totally misunderstand, but I'm extra clear. Um, sometimes if kids say certain phrases with little, little kids, it's useful to use those, that same phrase. Like I was seeing a child that was using the phrase ax. I ax everything when I'm mad or something. And so I used that phrase because I wanted it to resonate with him, what we were talking about. And he didn't feel teased. He was little enough, but with an older child, I wouldn't use the exact words. I'd make it someone different who has a problem like you, but not your exact problem. Sometimes when I've been working with kids a while, I work, work with one girl now, and when she was little, I could do this completely. She didn't really know I was pretending to be her, pulling her all her issues. She thought, what a coincidence, I think. That that dog that puppet has the same issue I do. Now she said, now she'll have something she'll tell me about. She'll say, I bet your dog has the same problem. <laughs> She's on to me. Um, <laughs> don't like this. That's really funny. <laughs> um, we, and, and, there's obviously so much here, and this is something that you've clearly spent so many years thinking about and developing out these programs. One of the questions that I have before we wrap up today, we've talked about, um, Phobias that are more, I don't even know what language to use, are... Concrete. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes. And then there are the things that are, for example, a child who's had traumatic experiences with a person who looks a certain way, who might smell a certain way, who uses a certain type of language or wears those bright blue jeans or whatever it is. How do you address that kind of marriage between a fear and phobia and then deep trauma when there are when there is a right. history of medical trauma or sexual trauma or these other things where it's it is not as simple as a happy birthday song it's like it's it's more complicated than that like do you refer out do you work with other trauma clinicians like how do you do that right now it's a very good question and trauma isn't my specialty but um and i used to say oh no i wouldn't touch any of that I've had some different experiences over the years. Actually, I said that someone asked me that question at, when I was presenting this and uh, maybe 20 years ago when there was a famous child development specialist in the audience. And I said, I said, oh, I wouldn't do anything related to their trauma. And he was like, yes, you could. Like, let's say their house had burned down. So they were afraid of candles and afraid of, I was like, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> so, so there, I would definitely want someone to work with the trauma piece, but I could work with the um, resultant, slew of phobias that are likely to pop up. And I would work with those in the same way. It's like, yes, this horrible thing happened. Um, but also, you know, we can still, you know, light candles at the birthday party, or we can still, you know, sleep alone in your room after a while, or, you know, work with all those resultant things that you can approach, you know, with, with lots of understanding of where they come from, but you still want the child to become functional and capable around all these other things. So it sounds like for you, it's collaborating. And I'm just imagining how helpful that could be to have multiple clinicians who are involved that are working together, communicating and saying, well, this is what I'm working on. And then here's how you can piggyback on it. And we can kind of integrate this idea because there are kids out there that have had really horrible experiences. And, you know, again, I, I don't work much with children and maybe we're starting to figure out why. Uh, but I'd be like, I'm scared. <laughs> like, I'm scared. I don't want to do this wrong. And again, into that category of these are the things where we need somebody that's highly specialized because it's really um, delicate work. Well, and sometimes I'll see the child later. Like I was working with one boy, they'd had a, a, another child in the family die and they had a lot of family work around that, you know, around that horrible trauma. And then the child I was seeing still had some kind of everyday 
fears and phobias that that I worked with. So I wasn't I was aware of that and we could talk about it as it was coming up, but I wasn't doing kind of the initial trauma work around it. I was the later pick up the pieces person. Got it. Um there's so much here for our listeners who are curious about you and also what you're speaking on today. How do they learn more about your work? How do they learn more about what you've talked about today? What are your resources? Well, I have a website um, it's something like Karen Levine, something. <laughs> if you just put in Karen Levine, it pops up. <laughs> I think it's Karen Levine PhD. I'm not sure. Or maybe just Karen Levine. Anyway, so on that website, I have some materials. We, we have um, an initial research study of this looking at feasibility and early outcomes. Kids, we were just in to sort of study if, it, if the method was acceptable and feasible, we actually had some cures in the bunch of a very short, you know, it was like a three-day clinic. Um, So we have a nice little research study there. And I have a handout about doing this with hand dryers as an example of mixing gradual exposure with humor, a sort of how-to that's very readable, no technical language. Um, And then there's a link to some videos that have been for conferences. Some parents have given permission to have the videos up there. So that's been Fantastic. Um, again, for our listeners, Dr. Karen Levine, Karen, thank you. Um, you've taught me quite a bit, not only as a clinician, but also as a parent. Uh, <laughs> there's some tricks I apparently need to buy. Oh, um, and I hope that this hour has been as helpful for our listeners. It has certainly been for me. Thank you for your work, for tackling something that I think, no pun intended, many of us are afraid of. Um, <laughs> thank you for doing it and for bringing so much grace and humor to it. And thank you for spending this time with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.